Yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do 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 do. Relax, 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 relax. Frankie says relax, huh? Just relax, dude. Tell you what. You better uh you better listen to Frankie, all right? I don't know what's going to happen if you don't, but Frankie says, relax. You better relax. True relaxation. I, I got to tell you, T, this was a fascinating <laughs> choice. You know, when you yeah. first said it, I was like, huh? Yeah. You know, we're going to focus, you know, mostly on the music and the record and the impact, which, the, which was significant, but certainly right from the onset, I think it needs to be acknowledged the, the importance, frankly, because, you know, these days and this is a good thing, probably, this record probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. It'd be kind of like, well, I, I kind of know what those guys are going for here, but, you know, people would just kind of take it for what it is. At the time, this was, you know, extreme. This was controversial. You know, this was impactful. And it was very interesting how these two different worlds that hadn't really collided a lot in the mainstream, we're talking 1984 here, we're able to, through a very unique artistic statement here, and one that, as we'll get into, had a tremendous amount of success and, and prevalence within this time frame. So, you know, that'll give you a little thinking as to, you know, kind of why I uh, decided to go with a bit of a unique choice this time. But the more I kind of dug into this and the story of it and the story of the band and then what happened to the band and the accolades around this, you know, both from a sales and, and critical and commercial standpoint, it just became more and more interesting nub. And I just figured, what the hell? Let's go for it. I like it. You know, I, and I, I agree with you that with the controversy at the time came one of the pivotal moments that we've had and sort of leading to where we're at in 2021, which is a much more, thankfully, much more tolerant kind of aware atmosphere when it comes to gay culture, gay arts, things like that. But you got to cast your mind back to 1984, a much, much different time. And that's what makes the analysis of this pretty fascinating is thinking about what it was at its time is a lot different than 2021. And, and again, you, you think about pieces of art that really influenced this. And this album is one of them. I remember for us to the movie Philadelphia was a huge moment, you know, just in terms of awareness and understanding and, and kind of building towards what, what hopefully most people would agree is a much better place today than we would have been decades ago when it comes to, you know, just kind of the tolerance and awareness of, of gay culture. And, and it's a great example of, really outstanding art that maybe even five years before or 10 years before people would not have been open to or been aware of. And so, yeah, I think it, it holds an important place in history, you know, maybe even more than music history. And we'll get into that a little bit as we talk about the tracks. Well said, buddy. And, and, and listen, make no mistake. Okay. 
this album is very gay. <laughs> I mean, you don't need to get too far into it before it's like, oh, I know what these guys are talking about, you know? And, and obviously we'll talk about the, the pinnacle single, which actually came out beforehand, which, you know, was another great example of, you know, there were probably a lot of people tapping their toe to a song that, you know, was catchy and upbeat and probably half of them didn't realize what was actually being discussed, but they didn't <laughs> care. And that was, that's part of the thinking here uh, in, in episode 42 here, Nub, is I want to know, was this album good? You know, when you get past, and these things were very important, as we've noted, but when you get past all those things, was it a good record? Why was it important from an artistic standpoint, from a musical standpoint? Or did it just kind of catch at the right time with the right producer? We talked about producers a lot last episode with Jagged Little Pill, and obviously that's going to be a very big part of this one. But hey, what do you say before we get to that, we take a little bit of a trip around and around. Nubbles, what have you been absorbing lately, buddy? Lay it on us. First would be the album FOMA from the Nixons. This is 1995. Oh, Sister. Yeah, that was, yeah. Sister, sister was like the hit. And my favorite song on that was called Wire. Yeah. Wire is awesome. Yeah, really good. But I wanted to get in the whole album. You know, it's one of those things I'm continuing the downsizing. I know you're, you're about to laugh at me, but I'm <laughs> continuing the downsizing of my vinyl collection. Well, well how many... How many versions of the Nixon's album do you own? That's what I'd, I'd like to know. Is There's only one final pressing of it. It's from 1995. And it's actually on, on colored vinyl. So you might actually be interested in this. It's on like turquoise vinyl. Well, thank God. Anything we can do to, to basically force you to just own one copy of an album. Is, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, exactly. a, that's a W. That's a win. It is interesting, though, T, because in the mid 90s, there was not a lot of vinyl being pressed. For whatever reason, this album had an original pressing on turquoise vinyl. And I, so I was sifting through and doing the downsizing and I came across this and it, it was sealed. It was brand new. So I had a brand new sealed copy of this record from 1995. And all I had really heard in the last, Oh, I don't know, 30 years was the song wire. Cause as mentioned, that's, you know, a song you and I both, both really like. So opened it, put it on the turntable and it's very good. It's, it's a lot heavier than I remember. You know, Sister was a little bit more of a, not a ballad, but like a slower mid-tempo kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were kind of your full-on post-grunge, mid-90s rock band. And uh, it's a good record, though. It's very good. So that's first. And then second would be the album, you know, you, you know the artist just from the album name, but Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich <laughs> from Warrant. I would say one of the better albums of this sort of cock rock. Era. Oh yeah. Oh, top to bottom for sure. You, it's one of those records. You're amazed at how many either just singles or familiar songs are on it. I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Gary, you can check on this, but I think it's 11 tracks or 10 tracks maybe. And like half of them, maybe even over half are hits or well-known uh, hair metal jams. So yeah, I agree. T here's what's interesting about that album. It's been on my Discogs wish list for probably two years, and I own it. <laughs> I had no idea I had it. 
<laughs> oh, so so you had it on your want list yeah. in, in Discogs, and lo and behold, you owned it the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, that, that yeah. sounds about right. I mean, did you ever go seek that professional help I suggested, or are you going to hold off on that? Or what's Yeah, I just keep getting referred to new people. I don't know what's happening. It yeah. must be something in the process. I don't know. But uh, And then third would be... All right, this is where I get real nerdy to you with the prog stuff, but this is a, the band is triumvirate and the album is 1976's old loves die hard. This is good German prog stuff. That's what's running around for me T. What are three albums that you have been enjoying of late? Very good. Well, I'll, um, they just released the live at Nebworth from Skinnerd, which is uh, both a, you know, audio, you know, CD and then a uh, Blu-ray. So you can actually watch the show. This is that really famous show they had outdoor during the day festival environment where Alan Collins is wearing that red outfit. You know, it's, it's very, very famous show for this band and they released it. The, the quality isn't amazing, but you're listening to the Skinner Nebworth show. So it's just awesome. And it was a triumphant, you know, set for that band. So I haven't watched the Blu-ray yet, but I've certainly listened to the show and it's great that they released that one. How long did Freebird clock in that performance? I believe it was uh, about the same amount of time as the title track of this episode's album, uh, about 14 minutes. <laughs> yeah. A trim 14 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the second is uh, going back to a little Barry Manilow. I got the Barry live on Broadway, which for some reason I actually didn't have in the collection. And this has the Gonzo hits melody and, and some other songs that were a bit, you know, kind of unusual um, per his usual, you know, set lists and tours and those things. It's a, it's a great live collection. And that Gonzo hits melody is really well done. I mean, it's, you know, 25 minutes covers all the bases. It's a little bit of a tease because, you know, there are certain songs where you don't want a, a 30 second snippet. You want the whole thing. Right. But, uh, you know, it's still great. So Barry live on Broadway. And then the third is a, is a country artist that I've been uh, recently uh, introduced to by one of my pals. And that's uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, you know, good, good old uh, Texas hardcore stripped down country music. Great stuff. Uh, and this is just his best of collection on 20th Century Masters. But if you are looking for some nice, chill, old school outlaw summer country music, go with Jerry Jeff Walker. I appreciate that recommendation because I've been looking for good country music for 41 years now. So thank you. It's a ridiculous thing to say. Let's get to some, what many people thought was some good pop music here. I think one of the things that really defines Frankie Goes to Hollywood as a whole, but certainly this album, is it may define short-lived success more than any record in history. I mean. This was literally, you know, an explosion within the industry, certainly within Europe, but really worldwide. And boy, did the band, it wasn't, they didn't really fizzle. They just sort of died after this. And there are a lot of intricacies to this album that led to its success that also probably hurt the band long-term that we'll get to, but it is an unbelievable story of rapid, rapid success, followed by a, a rapid sort of plummet. These guys certainly experienced that. And I think that's part of the fascinating story here, Nub. Wasn't it mostly because, you know, like a lot of commercial artists, they were starving for more 
creative control and they wanted to play their own instruments and stuff like that. And then they, they let them do it. And then the second album was just a disaster and didn't do a thing. And then they broke up basically. I mean, isn't that, well, should I answer that before Brian Johnson or after Brian Johnson? What do you think, Nub? I think it should be after Brian Johnson. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Welcome to the Pleasure Dome was released on October 29th, 1984. I think one of the most notable things about it is producer Trevor Horn. Now, we've talked about Trevor Horn before on the podcast. During certainly the yes episode, I think we've maybe even mentioned him once or twice elsewhere because he's an incredibly acclaimed producer. This was a a hot time for Trevor Horn. He was he had actually performed vocally on a yes album. He had produced a couple of yes albums. We talked about 90125. He had a huge influence on that. This was a producer that was kind of on fire. And clearly didn't mind taking on different projects. I mean, the difference between Yes and Trevor Rabin during 90125 era and Frankie Goes to Hollywood a year later, I would say is a fairly vast difference between those two projects. So it's a very interesting part of this. Nub, is it kind of funny when you listen through this record, and I know how much of a Yes fan you are, and obviously Drama is one of yours and my favorite uh, Yes records which features Trevor Horn on lead vocals. Is it kind of funny to think of him as such an important influence on yes. And then hear kind of his involvement, which is very clear on welcome to the pleasure dome with this band during this time. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, you nailed it within a four year span. He's lead singing for yes, making arguably one of the bands kind of more progressive albums with drama, you know, and then he produces the commercial smash of 90125. And then before you know it, he's basically running the show for Frankie Goes to Hollywood and creating, you know, a monumental hit and an important record there. So yeah, what a what a four-year run. And and if you extend it too, T, I mean, think about Trevor Horn doing that in the early 80s. And then remember the early 90s, who did Trevor Horn just destroy it with? Seal. You know, the the debut Seal album comes out and that's very successful. And then the second Seal album, also called Seal, just sort of destroys commercially as well. And that's like Kiss from a Rose and Prayer for the Dying and Don't Cry. I mean, the the dude just had like kind of a 10-year run that saw so much diversity, but so much success. And in every case, the running theme is that Trevor Horn had a lot to do with it. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome is basically a Trevor Horn album, you know? And let's not forget yeah. before all of this, T, before all of this, he was one of two guys in the Buggles who did Video Kill the Radio Star. Right. So from like 1979 to 1994, there may have not been a producer who was as efficient as he was in terms of finding incredible heights and probably made a few dollars too, I'm guessing. The band are, are an interesting group of guys. Um, they, they formed in Liverpool. So they are Liverpoolians, I believe they call it. Yeah. And they actually pay some homage to a uh, fellow group of Liverpoolians from the 60s on this record during what is kind of a cover song portion of the album. Uh, Holly Johnson is kind of the main, probably most recognizable face uh, that you've seen in videos. And he handled most of the lead vocals and a lot of the composition. And Paul Rutherford, 
also contributed toward most of the composition and and he was sort of a secondary vocalist and also played some uh, additional instrumentation and those things. But typically it was Holly and Paul kind of at the forefront and they were really the ones that kind of led, I think, most of the gay influences on their lyrics and content and tone and those type of things. Um, that sort of, you know, gave them a name for themselves even before this record. And we'll talk about the release of the singles. The other two band members, uh, Mark O'Toole on bass and Brian Nash on guitar, you know, certainly I think were the influences, the other direction of saying we want to be a band. You know, we don't necessarily want to be this highly produced, highly pop oriented thing. We want to like play instruments and compose music and and all those type of things. And while Trevor Horn was important, up, you got to give credit to this band. They wrote the hits. You know, this was not a deal where a producer came along and handed them songs and created this facade of a of a band that's really producer driven. These guys wrote these songs. What's interesting about the way Welcome to the Pleasure Dome came together is that these three singles that really define the record. And there's other tracks on there and we'll go through it, but this album's really about three songs. Before the record was released, as early as October of 1983, they released the first single in single-only format. They had not released a record yet. And that song was Relax. Then the band released Two Tribes, which was in June of 1984. So, you know... Relax stuck around for eight months before Two Tribes came on, and that was a super acclaimed song for them. And then The Power of Love came out in November of 84. So, you know, th- this was a building process. It wasn't like they dropped this record and nobody heard of them. You know, by the time the album came out, you had basically three songs that were very well known and a lead single that was, you know, iconic by this time. So the album was set up for success from the get go. In fact, the advanced sales of the record were over a hundred million and it really was led by those three singles. It was released on double vinyl LP. It was UK number one, the day it came out again, led by these advanced sales. Some Frankie Goes to Hollywood fans were a little bit critical of the record because it really contained new versions of these singles. And one of the other things we'll talk through is there there are a bunch of covers on this album. So it wasn't all new material. It wasn't all original material. So, you know, some fans, I think, maybe expected uh, more. But as far as the mainstream goes, I mean, this album was tremendously successful. One of the things that's really interesting about it, and it gets back to this idea of band versus producer, is that Trevor Horn's production just absolutely dominated this process. I mean, to your point, Nub, it's basically a Horn record with, you know, a few very important songs that were composed by the band. But in many cases, it's interesting. Trevor Horn told the band, don't worry about playing. I'm going to bring in session guys. Or actually, he brought, I don't know if many of you have heard of Ian Dury and the Blockheads. He actually brought in the Blockheads, um, which were the backing band for Ian Dury, but also they did a lot of session work around that time. I think that the friction within the band for creative control, to your earlier point, Nub, started early. And a lot of it had to do with Horn basically saying, okay, this is my baby now. This is going to sound and, and, and directionally come across the way I want it to. And if that means bringing in musicians that I want to play instead of you guys. That's the way it's going to be. I would imagine that that got things off to an interesting start within those sessions, Nub. 
for sure. There, there's always going to be a yielding of control when you have a, not just a big name producer T, but like a big credibility producer. Something that comes in that knows what they're doing and knows how to get a band to the top. So, you know, and the, but that is where the artistic conflict comes in. And, and it's clearly something that played a role in the longevity, or should we say lack of longevity with this band is there was that kind of need for artistic involvement. Yet you're also balancing that with the fact that you're making millions and millions of dollars off of Trevor Horn. So yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was a little icy at times, but man, if you got, if you got an all-star in there, let them play, you know? Definitely. And, and they did. Um, in 1985, the band won the Brit award for best breakthrough act. So they saw accolades right away. They also received uh, a Grammy nomination and an MTV video music award nomination uh, for best new artists. So, I mean, these guys, they hit hard. They were, they were big right away. They were acclaimed right away. And uh, it, it did not take this band very long to start getting attention. They were only the second act in the history of the UK charts to reach number one with their first three singles. That's pretty incredible if you think about it. As sort of fragmented as the charts scene has always been in the UK with a huge kind of variety of styles and genres and those type of things up to this time, that record eventually was broken by a group in the 90s. So, Nub. Let's see if you have a guess on this. Who broke Frankie Goes to Hollywood's record of having their first three singles go to number one? And you said it was in the 90s? Yeah, I'll say mid mid to late-ish 90s. Got to be a pop group. Mid to late 90s. It, but you said group. I, I, w- I actually would have guessed like uh, Britney Spears or something like that. But on a guess... I would say Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. But if I had to choose which one, Backstreet Boys, because I think they came first. So you're in the right ballpark. Let me give you a strong hint here. Okay. Late 90s. And remember, these are the UK charts, but you are dancing on it. You Spice, are. Oh, Spice Girls. There you go, baby. Okay. There you go. There you go. Okay. And, and Nub, uh, let's take this a step further. What were the three songs? Come on. You got this, buddy. <laughs> All right, dude. First was, if you want to be my lover. You got to get with my friends. I think it was Ding. Wanna, wanna be. D- Ding. You're one for one. Second was when to become one. <laughs> I need someone like I never needed love before. Want to make love to your baby. Love to beat you. Oh, and then the, the cool movement of that song is it's the only way to be. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know. Is that one of them? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just letting you go. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Two, two become one. Two become one. Very good. And then the third. No oh, shit. Mm. Wannabe. Two become one. Oh, um, um, giving, giving you, you everything. All the joy that takes it. Say you'll be there. Say you'll be wow. there. Yeah. Wow. What is that called? Say you'll be there. Wow. I mean, you got them all. Not only did you get the song titles, we got a performance on all. I mean, you, you know what? You, if you want to sit the rest of the episode out, I mean, your work is done here. That was pretty incredible. Or was it, are you a little bit ashamed? I don't I know. I might sit it out purely because of shame. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if I can re-enter. I don't know if a re-entry is possible in this episode. Yeah. I didn't like those songs or anything. I just, no, I just knew them. No, never, never. Who was your favorite Spice Girl to you? Who did you fancy? Um, 
I guess I kind of liked um, Sporty. Yeah, Sporty. Who was it? Scary, Posh, Sporty. Baby. 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 Ba- hold on. Baby, Sporty, Posh, Scary. And then who was spicy? Emma? No. Spicy? Emma. Was there a spicy? Oh, the Emma. redhead. Uh, what? She didn't get a cool name? Oh, she got a cool name. What was her? What was she? Was she I don't Posh? Know. I, I don't Wait, know. there were five. Baby, Scary, Posh, Sporty. I, I can't remember. <laughs> um, we'll, have to, we'll, have to, we'll have to get that one from a listener. Ginger. Ginger, yeah, ginger. Spice. Dude, I was even going to say, oh, the ginger, Emma. Yeah. Okay. Ginger yeah. Spice. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ginger. Do, do you want to keep talking about the Spice Girls or should we? Episode 43, we'll be looking at the first Spice Girls <laughs> album. Yeah. We're just going to do a full episode on Two Become One. Just you know, classic. Absolutely. Very touching number. Very touching. It really is. It really is. Um, we'll talk a bunch about relax when we get to it. But one of the things that's interesting, Nub, is it is the all time biggest selling single in the UK besides the song that actually knocked one of these singles off the charts in 1984. You want to take a crack at that one too? Now I'll give you a hint here. Remember, this record came out in October. Of 1984. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a, 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 a second Frankie Goes Hollywood single. But what knocked that song mm-hmm. off the charts and also what exceeded sales uh, beyond Relax, which had been the top selling single? 1984. 1984. In the UK. In the UK. My my first instinct was Bowie, Let's Dance, but that's 1983. I mean, think of how giant Relax was. What yeah. is the only thing that could have defeated? Oh, dude. It, uh, okay. We are the world or whatever. Or or do they know it's Christmas? It's gotta you be got it, buddy. You yeah. got it. Yeah. You got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job. Yes. Uh, feed the world. Do they know it's Christmas? So feed the world. world. Let them Let know, know it's, it's Christmas, Christmas time. time. I galled off, you know. You know, I gotta say, like ours was way better. I mean, come on. Oh, you think we are the world? Oh, way better than feed the world. Come on. I I really like. Do they know? Do they know it's Christmas? Is like one of the only Christmas songs I really like. Mm. We are the world is cool. I tell you what's better than all of them, without question, though is is uh, hearing aid. We're stars. We're stars. That's where the metal guys got yeah, together and did yeah. their thing. Remember that? Hearing aid. Hearing aid. That's a great call. Yeah. Hearing that aid was, was incredible. So that was for those of you that don't know, that was all the like hair metal guys and all the metal metal guys. Like I think Lemmy was on there. It was like they all got together and did sort of their version of We Are the World. It was called Hearing Aid. And what was the song called? Stars. Stars. Yeah. <laughs> We're stars. <laughs> it's terrible. And it's uh I mean it's awful, but also amazing at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. And like you had like like the drummer from Quiet Riot, you know, st-, like you know, it's just like the most random. Yeah. Know. It's a great video if people want to check it out. Well, part of what's funny is Feed the World outsold Relax. Um, but Holly Johnson actually sang on Feed the World. Not surprisingly, he was one of the top oh, yeah. stars at the that time. So sense. his his voice is actually on there. So, but that shows you the magnitude of of kind of where Relax, you know, sits in in the grand scheme here, and the fact that it took basically a monumental, timeless 
you know, song with uh, 45 artists on it around Christmas time, which is a peak time for sales to, to knock relax off of the best-selling singles of all time list. That really says something. Let's get to the wondrous stories here. Now, I mean, listen, everybody's got a Frankie goes to Hollywood story, right? I mean, that's just something everybody has. Well, not really, but uh, what's yours, buddy? Okay. Super random. My true awareness of this band came from something called Hell's Bells. Yes. Yes. All right. (laughs) I actually had it written down, but I'm glad you're saying it first. Okay. Well, well then, you know what? Why don't we combine wonder stories? We've never really done this before, but why don't we just like talk about hell's bells a little bit sure does yeah. that work so yeah instead yeah. of like me doing it and i'll kick to you and like let's let's yeah let's disrupt our normal routine here too go for it i love it so hell's bells is this um <laughs> it's this it's a documentary basically and t and i had a little dabbling when we were in school of going to a, a private christian school and as part of it part of the curriculum as you can imagine for us too, what this all went looked like was like to hear about how terrible like rock music was and how satanic, <laughs> you know, basically everything that we loved and lived for was. Yeah. It was a Baptist sponsored school. So, I mean, it was, this is intense, Yeah, you know, as far as being pretty strict and pretty conservative, uh, this was not like a cool Catholic private. So this was a hardcore Baptist sponsored uh, Christian school. So, yeah, exactly. So like literally part of the curriculum was to watch this thing called hell's bells, the dangers of rock music. And I'm so, I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> it's so great. I know. And it was hosted by this dude. I want to say his name was Jeff. I, it, I don't know why that name rings a bell, but anyway, yeah, the guy, he, I, thought, uh, I thought it was Dale, but maybe, maybe it's Jeff. I don't know. Dale. Let's call him Sa- Jeff. Dale. Same thing. Same yeah, thing. Exactly. So he had, like a, a great mustache and long, he had like a mullet. Oh yeah. A nice feathery mullet and a great mustache. Yeah. And it, I think the whole vibe was he used to be like a rock and roller, but then he got converted away from it. So anyway, hell's bells is like, it was like three VHS tapes or something. And it was incredibly long, this very, very thorough review of basically everything about rock music that contradicts, you know, Christianity and the Bible and things like that. And like why kids should not, take part in it. Right. I mean, it was basically a warning video. It was like propaganda of why, you know, kids should not listen to mainstream as they would call it secular rock music. We, we actually took it as one of the great comedy pieces of all time. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, we watched it endlessly just purely out of, well, we got a copy. We wanted to watch it so bad again. Yeah. We, got a, we found a copy of it. You know, it's one of those deals that we watched in school and then we're like, how do we get our hands on this? This is incredible. Like, we, like I want to watch this every week. It's so funny. And then, you know, we also wanted to show it to our other pals who, who didn't, you know, go to the same school as us. It's like, you got to see this shit that we're, <laughs> they we're watching yeah. at school, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we, we would watch it in this very flippant kind of mocking way, right? And within it are some of, you know, we've always mentioned that T and I, you know, you and your twins, you have this library of references and stuff. We reference this sort of inherently multiple times a month when we just talk, you know, we'll throw out a 
Hell's Bells reference or a line from it, or we'll word something in the same way that oh, yeah. the host did. And it, it's a great piece to watch just purely to see what kind of propaganda really looks like. And it's on YouTube. So if you, if you want, if anybody out there wants to watch it, it's, I mean, it's great. It's long. It's two parts. It's probably like three plus hours. Oh, it's the endless, whole thing. Yeah. But you know, hell's bells, the dangers of rock music, I think is the full title of it. And within that there's, there's a ton of, of different artists referenced, you know, and the, the funniest one for us always was he's going through a bunch of artists that, you know, you should stay away from or showed satanic imagery. I think this might have been the El Coronado part, right? Where he talks about the metal sign where you hold up, you know, your index and pinky fingers. Right, right. That's the El Coronado. Yeah. And he's running through the list of artists that like did the El Coronado and he, he does Rick James meatloaf <laughs> and it's this just picture of like just huge meatloaf like with his tongue sticking out doing the El Coronado. I mean he was basically yeah. saying like doing the El Coronado is like a sign uh, to, to summon Satan or something. I mean, it was just so funny. Yeah. 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 And so, so as part of the hell's bells, there is a segment about Frankie goes to Hollywood. I can't remember the exact context of it. It wasn't in one of my favorite bits. It was somewhere in there, but repetitive enough to where we knew it. And honestly, T that was the first time I ever heard the band name. Yeah. Now we knew relax just because it was MTV and it wasn't really radio for us, but you know, the, the song was so familiar that like, and I wouldn't say I liked that song by any means, but knew it, but would have had no clue who actually did it until Hell's Bells. And then, I mean, yeah. honestly, dude, that was the first time I ever heard of it. Well, same for me. And, and it was one of those deals. I kind of touched on this from the onset, but the more I learned about the band and the album and the impact and sort of what happened to the band and Trevor Horn. I mean, it just became so interesting. You know, it was kind of like, I want to listen to this record, you know, I want to kind of plow through this and see what's going on here. And, you know, Hey, got to the point where, you know, I thought an episode about it would be interesting. So it's one of those, those deals, you know, sort of on the deal there where you find a record that, you know, is intriguing. doesn't mean you have to love it. doesn't mean that you have to give it the same amount of accolades, but boy, is this intriguing. Uh, from a time period standpoint, from an artistic standpoint. And yeah, it kind of started as a, a giggle on Hell's Bells, but then it was sort of like, there are a lot of interesting sort of storylines and angles related to this. One of the other things I always kind of liked is, you know, Relax is such a, it was an anthem. I mean, it was a huge, huge song and and a timeless tune, really. But one of the things I always love doing, Nub, is saying, you know, have you ever looked at the lyrics to that song? And people be like, no, no, I, th I thought it was just about like hanging out and just, you know, and it's like, read the lyrics and then give me a call. <laughs> yeah. I just love the reaction, you know? Um, so I always really thoroughly enjoyed informing people as to the true meaning of the song. Cause you know, seeing their reactions is always pretty hilarious. Well, good, good joint wondrous story there, Nub. I think it's time we put the needle on this record and go for it. So uh, let's do it. The record kicks off with just an intro. We're not going to play it. It's just called The World Is My Oyster and it's uh, you know, sort of a, a prologue more than anything else. But no, I'm very, very interested because of the fact that I don't know if this exists, but if there was such thing as a 
pop tune within this genre, within this scene that you could argue is borderline proggy. It probably is the 14 minute title track. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Now, Nub, were you surprised, you know, when you sort of dug into this one that it does kick off with a long piece like this? And what do you think of this song? I I really want to know before I say anything. Well, I was excited. Like I always am when I see a a long song on an album, (laughs) you know, and then you listen to it. and, And while I do like the drawn outness of it. I also feel like you could have accomplished what this song accomplishes in a much shorter time. And I think it gets into kind of the, the repetitive theme of this album, which is just this yeah. driving backbeat, you know, yeah. like everything is, just, mm, 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 yeah. you know, it's, it was definitely men. I mean, it's a club genre type record and this, this kind of gets you off to that start, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. And so, more twists and turns would have been cool. And I think I, I, the, the word I'm going to constantly use with this album is potential because there are some tracks on this record that really could have gone somewhere if you just broke up the monotony a little bit and found a way to build in some melody. It's actually not a very melodic record. It's not. It's mostly no. driven by rhythm. Yes. Yeah. 100% right. I dig the fact that they were trying to do something epic, but to do something epic, you have to do more than just thump away. And, and that's sort of the theme of this record top to bottom. It just thumps and thumps and thumps. And at some point you're just like, can I get like a melody break or, you know, <laughs> something kind of pretty there in the middle or something. It really never does that. So. Well, you get it a little bit on the next track, but you make a great point. I mean, it is definitely not a, it was definitely designed to be sort of based on rhythm and based on sort of a certain vibe. Now I think it's cool. I think it's ambitious. I think it's, you know, the fact that this took up all aside one, I, I think it's pretty neat. And it's a track that I don't know if I'd want to listen to it every day, but I'm certainly going to listen to it regularly just as something that was unique, ambitious, and in some ways and in some movements during the song, kind of triumphant. But, you know, all in all, I think it's rather than starting off with kind of a three minute, you know, thumper, I think it's kind of cool that they sort of went for it right from the get-go. And that's that's part of what I do dig about this whole Welcome to the Pleasure Dome experience. There really aren't any rules, musically or creatively, and they just go for it. And, and part of that's cool. And I think that that was a big part of the appeal. Well, speaking of going for it, Nub, um, I guess the, the fellas really went for it here on something that really became more than just a song. It, it sort of became a phenomenon with Relax. So obviously this this was the single that, that really kicked things off for the band in late 83, but the controversy it created was incredibly interesting. So 
the song was banned on BBC Radio. Obviously, at that time, you know, if you didn't have your song on BBC, like it had no chance. But the opposite happened. Once the song got banned, it immediately shot up to number one. The, the song was so, the single became so popular that they actually lifted the ban because it was also on television for the Christmas special of Top of the Pops in late 83. Now, this is before the album even came out. So all these things are happening where you've got a smash single, to say the least, banned on radio, banned on TV. Then the thing becomes so popular that Top of the Pops of all platforms basically says we have to have these guys come on and perform this. And they did. It also led to this sort of phenomenon of a branding t-shirt campaign of Frankie Says. So, you know, basically these t-shirts were developed that said Frankie Says Relax or Frankie Says This, Frankie Says That. And it became a huge thing in the UK. I mean, everybody was walking around with these shirts on. And it all stemmed from this idea of expression, of censorship, of communities sort of pulling together a bit on something that became kind of anthemic. Now, it's kind of silly because when you really read the lyrics, I mean, it's very sexual. It's very graphic. But the song sort of became part of this, you know, sort of branded effort and one that was very 80s. I don't think those type of things could happen today, but was a huge deal. So a lot of people think of this song as kind of something silly or something graphic or whatever. But the song was actually tremendously important to the culture at the time. You said earlier you're not a huge fan of the song. I think it's great. I mean, you talk about an 80s pop anthem. This is one of them. I do like it. Yeah, it's I think Trevor Horn's playing with a lot of interesting kind of rhythms and interludes here. You know, kind of that I think about that boom, boom, boom. You know, that's kind of a cool little catchy thing. And then the I mean, there's just so much going on. So when you think about that rhythmic punch that this album sort of carries, what's cool about Relax and one of the reasons why I think it was such a huge hit, obviously the catchiness of the chorus, but Horn is mixing in some of these little sprinkles along with that driving backbeat. And that enhanced it. It took it from what a lot of the rest of the album is, which is just this relentless kind of drive and actually turned it into something, dare I say, melodic. I mean, the, the verse is not catchy because of its melody. It's catchy because of its rhythm. But there's enough melody there to make it a pop hit for sure. But I think the thing you touched on is, is more significant than any of this, which is that it was one of the great early examples of that if you make something a forbidden fruit, it's only going to make it more popular. And how many times has that been ripped off yeah. since this happened? Now, it was accidental, right? I think mean, looking back to think about that the song was banned is just ridiculous. But everybody learned that sometimes just creating controversy will drive sales, will drive attention. That was an important lesson. Now, one that we've abused to death by the year 2021, but one that in 1984 was important for people to learn about, you know, that you can actually create mystery and intrigue about something by sort of deeming it inappropriate. And no matter what, everyone's going to make buckets of money because it's going to sell millions of copies. So there you go. Yeah. Holly Johnson said, you know, he didn't calculate this like extreme graphic song that's going to get banned one day. I mean, that wasn't his thinking. He was actually walking down, he says, Princess Avenue 
in Liverpool and just kind of came up with the beat and the lyric on his way to a rehearsal. You know, it wasn't like, let's create something that's going to, you know, challenge censorship or whatever. I mean, he, he just kind of said, this is, this is a cool bouncy beat and lyric. Uh, the key was when Trevor Horn saw the band perform a very early version of relax on a small TV show called the tube. And it clicked with horn. He just said, this is a hit. I know this is a hit. Let me get my hands on it. Cause the early version horn said it was more of a jingle than a song, you know, when he first heard it, but he knew there was something there. And it almost seems like that was the moment where horn kind of said, if I could just, you know, get my mitts on this song and on these guys and sort of mold them into a certain sound in a certain direction, I know this is going to be huge. And boy, it sure as hell was. So the record proceeds with uh, the next five songs are kind of interesting. Four of them are covers. Now, why don't we just kind of we'll group those together here and talk about them quickly and, and we'll, we'll play a couple bits. But the first is War, obviously a well-known tune by uh is it Edward, Edward Star, Edwin Star, Edwin Star, yeah. Edwin Star. There you go. Um, you know, it, it's sort of led by this Ronald Reagan sound alike. So it's a little bit of like a comedy piece for the first half. And then they sort of kick into the main jam. They cover uh, a song which was originally called Fairy Cross the Mercy. And this is the Jerry and the Pacemakers tune. Now they do this shortened version of it, but paying a little bit of homage to their uh, Liverpool influences. And, and as I mentioned earlier, the band that they actually broke the record on number one singles from in the UK charts. Then they do a cover of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, which is actually pretty cool. And then they do a cover of San Jose, the old Burt Baccarat tune. So why don't we just give you a quick, uh, you know, bit from each of those. This is a little bit from War. Couple with an inch pride. <laughs> very, very kind of funny, interesting version of war, uh, kind of clubbed out. There's also a track in there called tag, and this is a Prince Charles impersonator just sort of ruminating about orgasms, you know? So it's, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds long. It's just kind of funny and weird, but, uh, then you get into, uh, the Jerry and the pacemakers cover. So this is called fairy. This land's the place I love, and here I'll stay. It's actually a pretty cool take on that song, actually. If you listen to the original, it's kind of a spacey, a little bit more ambient. I, I think that's actually a pretty cool moment on the record, particularly when you consider, you know, that they're uh, paying some tribute to their uh, fellow, you know, Liverpool influences there, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Then they give a little homage to the boss here with Born to Run. Now, what do you think of that one? I think it's pretty cool. I do too. I, I, I would get <laughs> killed for this in certain circles, but I kind of like it better than the Springsteen version. I agree. You know, like, and I've never been a huge 
born to run. I'm very picky about my Springsteen. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been moments where Springsteen was just brilliant, you know, the rising and Nebraska and, you know, some of the other earlier stuff, but the river. And then there's just moments where Springsteen is like unlistenable, you know, just awful. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never held born to run the song up and even close to the, you know, stratospheres that many rock fans hold it up to. So I don't know, man, I might dig this one better. I, I kind of agree. And you hear them being a band there too. They're jam- They're just jamming. Like they're jamming on a song that obviously they liked. It's a cool version of it. And I think that's one of the moments on, on here where you hear the band being a band, you know, which is cool. And then the last uh, piece of this sort of uh, cover section is San Jose. I mean, again, this is part of what, like, whether you like this or not, you got to respect the no rules. I mean, they go from a cover of Born to Run to this cover of San Jose. Just, I mean, for no reason. Like, it's, it's, I don't know. There's something neat about just the lack of any boundaries whatsoever on this thing. So took a little off sequence there, but that's kind of the grouping of cover songs. And uh, no, did you have anything else to add on that? No, I just, you know, more covers, I would say. I kind of dig the covers on this album more than a lot of the originals. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, this next song was probably the most acclaimed on the record, and this is called Two Tribes. So this is the second of the the three number ones. So you had Relax in October of 83. This is Two Tribes in June of 84. Now listen to this nub. Johnson, Gill, and O'Toole wrote the song. So three of the four band members received the 1984 Ever Novello Award from the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors for Best Song Musically and Lyrically in 1984. Pretty incredible. Now, part of the appeal of this song is lyrically, it is pretty interesting. It's fairly political. It's something that dug a little deep, uh, I think, uh, compared to most of the other things on the record. And, you know, this sort of was all part of this um, Frankie Says campaign. You know, this song and Relax both, you know, really were big elements of that. It stayed at number one for nine weeks, and it was the first song to do that. Since the song from Greece, You're the One That I Want, which, as you know, in the UK is like a huge song. Like, like people just can't get enough of that song. It's like one of their like timeless, you know, deals. So, you know, it sold one and a half million copies and to this day is a top 30 selling UK single of all time. And in 2015, the song was voted by the British public as the nation's 14th favorite 1980s number one song, which obviously there were a lot and that's pretty steep competition. So I don't really understand it. I mean, I think again, you, you have to put it in the context a little bit and these guys just really striking while the iron was hot. I mean, I I don't think it's that great of a song, but boy, it had a huge impact 
critically and culturally at the time. It's an accomplishment for sure. I mean, was there a connection to it? Did it become a stadium anthem or something like that? Like I do, I do wonder how it got so famous. And I, probably in the clubs. I mean, oh, okay, which obviously, yeah. again, this album is really, I think, directed. I think Trevor Horn really understood that culture and that importance. Um, so I think that's where. But I mean, clearly, this thing was a huge, you know, mainstream, you know, critically acclaimed uh, hit from this album. I do like the fact that it's sort of the first and maybe only song on the album, aside from the covers, where where they just don't sound like just a bunch of totally horny guys, you know, like it's got some references. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You know, it's got references that are a little more introspective and, and uh, relatable, I would say, than just, than a bunch of guys just talk about, you know, just how much they love to get it on and stuff. <laughs> I mean, so I, I kind of dig the, a little bit more depth to it, but uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, important song, but I, I'm shocked at just how revered it is in the UK. There's no better segue than what you just laid out, Nub, for the next song. Wish the lads were here. <laughs> I'm sure they, I'm sure they wish the lads were here to, um, you know, uh, have a cookout or. Um, you know, maybe play checkers or something. I mean, uh, that's, that's why they want the lads there. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just for some male bonding. It's a funny, uh, it's a kind of a funny little jam. And, uh, and that takes you to another interesting instrumental ballad called the ballad of 32. Now, other than the uh, kind of sex noises at the end, it's actually a pretty song. It's, uh, uh, you know, something where, again, you hear instrumentation, you hear them being a band. It's kind of interesting to stick a uh, instrumental here. And this next song, I think, I think, you know, this is the area where you do kind of hear coming off the covers moments where it's, it's the band being a band and doing what I think at least a couple of the members intended. You can really hear that this is something that could have come out of a jam rehearsal session. And I think that comes through uh, with the next track, Crisco Kisses. It's a little more of its time. You know, something that, again, you could see them kind of working out uh, in a rehearsal space or whatever it may be. And I think particularly for, you know, the other two band members, uh, other than Rutherford and Johnson, you know, this is probably the type of direction that they wanted to go. And this reminds you a little bit of their follow-up album called Liverpool, which was, uh, you know, the band playing the instruments and a bit of a return to a more traditional approach. The other connection I get on this track to finally is the connection to ABC, which is another Trevor Horn, you know, we didn't mention it earlier in his sort of decade or 15 years of dominance, but great point. This song sounds a lot like it was off the lexicon of love. And uh, I think it has to do with some of that orchestration 
sort of elements and even vocally, this sounds quite a bit like uh, what was going on with with ABC. So first kind of moment where it sounds like, oh yeah, that that's that connects back because as we mentioned, it was very you know eclectic fifteen years for Trevor Horn, but uh, I'm hearing shades of Lexicon of Love here for sure. It's a great point, and I I think you you touched on it early with kind of the potential piece of this album. There are moments here that probably paved the way for some new sounds. You know, Horn deserves a lot of credit for that. The band deserves a lot of credit for that. But I think you hear that uh, as well on Crisco Kisses, something that, you know, perhaps paved the way for some of those sounds that you would eventually hear in ABC, the Trevor Horn Project. A great example of that. We move on with Black Knight, White Light. And then, and then right into the, yep, yep, you know, yep. now it's a, it's a short section, but it does take you into that club beat, which is obviously, I think it's kind of a cool reoccurring identity of the record, you know, and you get it early on with the title track. I think the song's pretty good. I think that some of the keyboard layers happening, it's a little bit more directional. It's a little bit more melodic, you know, to your point earlier about not having a lot of that on the record. I think black Knight white light is kind of a high point here in the back half of the album. No doubt. I, I think it's a high point on the album. I mean, just purely from a songwriting perspective, it's, you know, certainly top three, maybe even top two in terms of just composition, because it's, it's got a, a chorus that, you know, there's some elements to, you know, there's more to it than just sort of the club sound. And I do like how, you know, it always goes back to the, you know, <laughs> You know, those fake bongo, the fake congas and bongos yeah. are a huge part of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, for sure. For sure. But, uh, but I like how it, I mentioned at the beginning, right? Like just some more variation. And you finally kind of see that here late in the album with, uh, with this one. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Some of the, some of the variation, some of the kind of diverse sounds you get here toward the end, I think are actually pretty functional and pretty good. Uh, getting toward the end here, this is the only star in heaven. Hey, guitar, guitar, instrumentation, um, riffing. It's, I think it's great. I mean, listen, I, I think that this, you know, these two songs kind of pieced together here are a really nice part of the album, honestly. Um, so, you know, black Knight, white light into the only star in heaven. And then obviously what we'll get into next was part three of kind of the three, you know, smash singles. Um, the only star in heaven, I think is really nice. What do you think? Love it musically. Love it. It suffers from kind of a ridiculous vocal performance, which is sort of trademark for the album. The album does have some musical moments that, again, potential you really could do a lot with. But yeah, vocally, I just, you know, it, it doesn't take advantage of the riffing and some of the things you mentioned. This, this could have been a really cool moment, almost like style council-ish, like kind of frantic yeah, in the jagged guitar thing. But the vocals distract for me. So love the music. Don't really like the, uh, the melody and the vocal line. The final song of the record was certainly one of the biggest hits. 
this one also uh, hit number one. Now, this one only stayed there for a week and was uh, also impacted by Do They Know It's Christmas because this uh, was released in November of 84. It's often thought of in the UK as kind of a Christmas song. I'm not really sure why, but it was probably just the, you know, the time period that it came out more than anything else. But this was a huge song off this record uh, called The Power of Love. I mean, it's pretty. Uh, again, I think the, uh, to your point, the musicality of it is really strong. The the vocals okay. I, I'm sure there are some covers out there with a more emotional vocal that are probably pretty good. I get why it was a hit. I don't really like it that much, but you know, it's very British, and and I think that again, when you put it in the context of when it came out and the, even the time of year that it came out. You know, clearly people latched onto this as sort of a holiday song, um, which is interesting. And the UK is funny like that, how they kind of, you know, are, are so good at carving out these sort of buckets for things. And this one certainly found a niche and, and found an audience and was a huge hit, hit number one. And still the case, because I think this song scripted the playbook for what, 30 years later with uh, It's a Sign of the Times. You got a better baby, the Harry Styles song, right? <laughs> what the it, hell? <laughs> it, it's almost the exact same song. I don't know this song. Keep singing it. Keep going. Oh, Harry Styles, Sign of the Times? Can't keep going. Come Quit on. drying your eyes. It's a sign of the times. You got to get away from it. It was like, I don't know, five years ago. It, Harry Styles left One Direction and it was like his big hit. You don't know this? I am loving all the nubs vocals on episode, <laughs> yeah, yeah. episode 42. It is on fire. It's like a draggy open ballad with, but, but Harry Styles, he gives his like powerful vocal. You, I like the song actually. It's got the orchestration at the end and the whole shot. It, it really sounds like it's running the playbook of the power of love. It almost sounds like identical songs. It's like the producers that control Harry Styles said we, we got to do something that's like the power of love from Frankie. So uh, it, almost eerily similar in, in just the structure and feel of those two songs. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You can definitely sense the, you know, obviously there were British, you know, pop ballads before this, um, but you can sense that this definitely was influential as far as building and producing and sort of the, the treatments around the direction of these, you know, ballads that were huge chart toppers in the UK throughout the remainder of the decade. Uh, the album ends with just a track called Bang. Frankie say no more. Frankie say no more. And that's it. There is certainly a, a you know, tongue in cheek element throughout this whole album it's not an album that takes itself seriously you know which is i think another thing artistically that you know you can appreciate about it whether you like the actual music or not that frankie guy sure is bossy though isn't he he's always telling us what to do <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i mean goodness but but like i said before you better do what he says <laughs> yeah you tell, better tell you what <laughs> um 
So that wraps it up. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an adventurous album. Certainly. I mean, there's a lot of tracks and a lot of different directions. We, we kind of clustered together the cover song section uh, to try and section it out a little bit there, but nubs did this one matter? Yeah. Yeah. The album matters. It's an important eighties album. Very important for gay culture and the arts. Uh, one step in a very long process of building further, you know, awareness and tolerance and kind of getting us to a much better place in 2021 than maybe the world was in 1984. So all those things make it important and make it matter. Um, I also do like, you mentioned this many times, there are great points just about the unabashed creativity. They were, they did everything they wanted to do and the thing was still successful. And that's a good lesson. It's a very, very important lesson for people to remember that sometimes if you just let the producer and let the artists do whatever the hell they want, that you can still, in your words, move a lot of units and you can still achieve something uh, commercially and creatively at the same time. And so for those reasons, it definitely matters. It reminds you of that time, especially in the mid eighties where things were so plastic, right? I mean, everything was, was so driven by you know, what was going to be the hit and what was going to be on MTV and what was going to have the image and blah, blah, blah. It is kind of cool that they have this hit album that literally did whatever the hell it wanted to do at all times. So you got to respect that. What do you think, T? Does it matter? Yeah, I agree for the same reasons. You know, the, the lack of boundaries artistically, the lack of rules, I think is really interesting. And, and so culturally, it certainly had an impact, but I think creatively it even had an impact, you know, and we talked, you know, last episode about Alanis and about Glenn Ballard and the ability to kind of create commercial production, but also with a lot of authenticity from the artist and Jagged Little Pill captured that perfectly. I actually think Welcome to the Pleasure Dome captured that pretty nicely. You know, this is a group of guys that knew they wanted to do something unique knew they wanted to do something out of the box, uh, knew that they wanted to do something that didn't have any rules. And Trevor Horn was able to take it and make it a commercial statement, but also, you know, maintain that authenticity. Balancing those things is very difficult, you know, and I think that's part of the reason why this caught on. Um, So yeah, I, I think it had, you know, plenty of importance around that time. And it's a very interesting thing to revisit. I mean, again, even if you, if even if you pull the needle off the record and say, I don't know if that's for me, you've got to respect the sort of contextual element of what this album meant when it came out and toward the audience in particular that it hit, which was much more mainstream than niche, as we see as we kind of plow through it and look at some of the accolades and, and some of the reception. All right, now let's do the final cut on this one. Are you putting it on the turntable? Are you putting it in the collection? Is it collecting dust for you? Or are you taking it to the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? You know, I have to stay true to uh, history and um, putting Welcome to the Pleasure Dome in the for sale bin because I actually did. Bought the album, was intrigued by it, you know, saw the opening tracks, saw some of the things that I thought, ooh, this will be great. And it just, it just never caught on. It would never became something that I needed in my collection for any reason, mostly because the couple of things on it that I might use as a reference point, you can find elsewhere. And the album, it just doesn't have enough variation, you know? And, and that being said, it's incredibly all over the place, right? 
but it doesn't have enough variation of things that are memorable for me. It's just, it, it goes by so easily. It's almost like background music to me. So I love the choice and, and love the analysis of the album and love its place, but it's in the for sale bin for me, just because simply I, I really would never listen to a top to bottom. And I actually did put it in the for sale, bin. I think I got four bucks for it. So there you go. <laughs> See where you got it in the final cut. You know, I'm on kind of a collecting dust streak here, but I'm going to go with that again. And, you know, totally understand your position there. I don't think it's an album that you necessarily need to own, right? I think there are singles you can pick from it, but it's just so interesting. It's just so, um, I do think it was important. I do think it's within its context of the time, really fascinating to revisit. The way the band fell apart after this is part of the story, you know, and, you know, there was a kind of a fight for creative control. There were two guys within the band that I think liked being, you know, sort of a a gay act, if you will, and two members of the band that didn't really like that. And so you had some dissension amongst the band. You had some friction between band and producer, and you had a band that wanted to sort of get back to its raw sort of approach. And they did that on their follow-up album, Liverpool, which is actually quite good, but commercially it was just horrible. And, you know, the band was done. So, I mean, this really all happened within basically a two year span. And, um, you know, there have been some reunion things and Holly Johnson has gone on the festival circuit, you know, with the 80s rewind stuff and all that. But as far as Frankie Goes to Hollywood goes, uh, an incredible surge of success that was very quick and very short lived. And for all those reasons, I do think it's a really interesting thing to kind of revisit. So I'm going to go collecting dust. You know, I'm on a, I'm on a roll now. I'm on a streak with collecting dust. So, Hey, you know, let's, let's just keep rolling with it. eh? I like the consistency. Absolutely. We'll see what happens next week though. We'll see if you continue with the streak. Well, we shall see. I mean, shoot, I'd like to get one on the turntable. It's been a bit, but, uh, before we, uh, sign off here, why don't we cool down? I mean, it gets, gets a little hot with Frankie there, doesn't it? Uh, you need to need to cool it down a little bit, maybe ice down a little bit. So let's do that with, uh, with, uh, Dolores here. Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? First would be uh, a little 1965, yeah. Whoa. Ah, yeah. Thunder Kiss 65, which of course contains one of the great riffs of all time with. Absolutely. Boy, that Rob Zombie could sure make a simple riff, couldn't he? I mean. I listen, I still think more human than human is like one of the greatest songs of that decade easily. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a, good. that is a jam. That is it's a, really good. you know, kind of combining kind of the electronica that was still pretty unique at that time with kind of this driving metal thing. I mean, yeah, it was in a great vocal. I mean, yeah, that, that song was awesome. Absolutely. Second would be uh, somebody to shove from soul asylum. That was the, Breakthrough hit off of Grave Dancers Union. And then lastly would be uh, Hold On by Yes, but not the Yes version. I recently got a DVD of the kind of two or three years ago, Anderson, Rabin, Wakeman did mm. a tour in their version of Yes. And the version they did of Hold On is just incredible. Wakeman does a cool little keyboard thing during the chorus. And oh, nice. So I've been, I've been listening to that a ton lately. So excellent. That is what is in my head. T, what is in your head? I have uh, Amy Grant. And uh, this is a Find Away off of our her album, Unguarded. 
just a just a great song love it love me some amy uh you know hey we talked about the baptist uh you know high school let's let's get some christian christian pop going in there right that's the uh, love will find a way like that one a way to go yeah yeah yeah, yeah nice. it's, a, it's it's a real beauty uh the second we're gonna go with a band that i've mentioned a couple times on here called bm links this song is called the outlaw jimmy rose just a freaking it'll blow your head off if you let it absolute jam song that i don't still don't understand why it wasn't a bigger hit and then the last one is a, a an old failure jam we talked about kenny andrews and my starstruckness with him in the uh, q a episode and heliotropic which is not a song i it took me like 10 years to really understand but has become certainly one of my favorites uh there toward the end of fantastic planet isn't that what's cool about that album though is as important as it was to us you still every once in a while can hear something in it where it's like oh yeah like i didn't pay that much attention to that song back in the day but now it really resonates no question maybe an album that we'll talk about someday new blaze what do you think I think that would be a lot of fun. Well, as for now, we're going to wrap episode 42, which means next week we'll be back with episode, let's see, carry the 243. Let me get my abacus out. Yeah, 43. 43. Yep, 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 it is. Uh, Nub, thank you, buddy. I know that was an interesting choice, and uh, hopefully you all enjoyed it. A little something, little something different. Frankie says, I love you, T. <laughs> well frankie says i love you too buddy and frankie also says that's a wrap on episode 42 we will see you next week here on two twins and an album That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.